This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Over the next several weeks, we are going to devote a mini-series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes in your health. We'll discuss concepts and genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Karen Mahar, and we will be discussing ethical considerations. Dr. Mahar is an assistant professor in the Biomedical Ethics Research Program at Mayo Clinic Rochester. She's interested in ethics and population health, especially how professional training, genetic technologies, and infectious diseases affect moral perceptions and attitudes. She's also involved in biobanking, community engagement, and public education. She has a PhD in philosophy from Michigan State University and was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Mahar, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. It's a joy to be here. Well, Karen and I talked a little bit before the meeting because when we talk about ethics, it is a huge field and there's so much to talk about. So I think about genomics and genetic testing and there's really two groups of patients that come in to see me. There's a group that anxiously show up with their tests that they've gotten from direct to consumer and I've left to sort of interpret these. And then there's the group that are absolutely fearful of genetic testing for any reason. And it's always hard to know, but let's start with that group that's fearful. So you and I talked before and you talked about it, genetic determinism. And, and I think that's where this fearful group comes from. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Because I think many of us as primary care clinicians have that experience with patients when we talk about any form of genetic testing. Yeah, genetic determinism is a phrase that we use in ethics. It's used in genetics as well to capture the belief that genes or parts of our DNA that we inherit from our biological parents are strongly causal. And in fact, the belief is that they're so strongly causal that they drive our fate. And so it's the belief that if you get that positive test result on a genetic test, that now your fate is sealed. This outcome, this risk of a, some kind of a health or um, illness outcome is going to come and befall you and yours maybe even as well. And so I think that's one thing that can happen that's behind that fear is this sense that, you know, we like to believe that we're the agents of our own lives. And you can have that sense of loss of control when it comes to um, genetics, if that's what you believe about the strong causality. And so I hope in our conversation here today, we'll actually help question and critically examine, because that can be true for some genetic conditions, but the vast majority of our genes are a lot more complicated. And there are a lot of things that we can do just with any other kind of health condition. We know that even in conditions where something would be autosomal dominant, say some of the BRCA genes. It's not really an all or none, is it? No. And in fact, it's 
one of the really challenging things when talking to patients is to communicate that complexity because there's lots of reasons that it's not that simple. And one of those reasons is the notion of penetrance, which is maybe something that you've talked about with other geneticists on the pod. And so <laughs> I'll defer to them for their expertise there, but it's the idea that our genes can have a small causal influence and therefore it's probabilistic whether or not if you and I have the same gene, maybe you might end up sick and I might not. Or in families like mine that does have the BRCA gene, my cousin might have the gene and have a certain kind of health outcome and I might also have it and not have that outcome, even though it's the same gene or even the same variant. And the other thing that can happen is that most of people who are sort of implicitly, maybe they haven't even thought about it that much, believing in genetic determinism, can believe that there's one gene and one outcome or one gene and one disease. And most of the conditions, especially that we're seeing in primary care are actually polygenic. So they're caused by lots of genes that add up and maybe create increased risk. So again, probabilistic, but also not a simple story to tell about what's happening in our bodies. And then the last thing, I'm also a social scientist. And so I care deeply too about telling more complex causal stories. And so we always have to think about how our genes interact with our environment. And we know we're having this amazing conversation about the power of social determinants of health and how we can intervene on that in a primary care setting as well. And so we want to make sure that we're telling that complex story as well. And so those layers of causes can get really complicated when you start to think about why it is that our genes don't determine our fate. So when you talk about probabilistic, I have trouble with that word, I guess what you're saying is that even if that patient has a gene, there really is a probability that they'll have the disease, but it's not 100%. Yeah, and that's one of the other things that can be difficult when we're on the edge of advances in science. In genetics, this new information, this new, sometimes we call it the genomic era, it comes from studies of entire populations. And then we're trying in a primary care setting to move from that population level information to the individual. And that's where we really end up with questions about the predictive power of our capacity to do that. Because with the, and that's sometimes why you see, say for example, BRCA, those genes are often said to say like, oh, this increases your risk of breast and ovarian cancer by 50 to 80%. So even when you're communicating that information, you're hearing that probabilistic nature within that range, but also like 50% is a coin toss. <laughs> so I think there's also that, that sense of chance is also really hard to communicate because it involves understanding what it means to have where that information came from regarding the whole population. And it also involves questions about numeracy, which we know is really challenging for everybody, not just patients, but experts too. I wanna to talk a little bit, we mentioned BRCA, about an ethical dilemma that I've actually faced in the office. And I think sometimes clinicians get this and we use BRCA, but it could be any genetic condition. So I had a patient who in fact did have breast cancer and was found to be a carrier of BRCA1, which we know is inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion. And my patient had children and also had female siblings, male siblings as well. But, and some of her family members were actually my patients as well. 
And when we found out that she had breast cancer and she did the genetic testing, I had a discussion with the patient and I said, you know, this is something that is heritable, meaning that your family members, your sisters, her mom was dead, and your children could actually have this gene and that would increase their risk. They were younger and still of age where some were of age where mammography would typically be recommended. Some were younger than that. And even in, the, in some of those patients, some of those individuals were my patients. And she said, I'm not telling anybody. This is my private and you can't tell anybody. So here I am. I have this information that has a potential significant impact on some of my patients. And she doesn't want to tell. So this is a huge ethical dilemma for me. But what do I do? So how would you walk me as a clinician sort of through this situation about what do I do? What do I tell the patient who has a BRCA gene? And HIPAA regulations prohibit me from passing the information on. I know that. I would never, I would never breach that. But what do I do? Yeah. So first of all, I want to mention that I'm a research ethics person. And so if you especially want consultation, I think the most important thing for any clinician to know is that you don't have to be alone with these kinds of dilemmas. There are resources at Mayo Clinic for you to call the Office of Clinical Ethics so that they can help you think through this so that you don't have to grapple with that feeling of being torn, a physician which can really tear you apart. And so when I'm thinking through this kind of challenge, because I do a lot of the same thing, but in a research context, what we're trying to deal with is the complexity that our genetic information is both deeply individual. So we often think of it as like something like a fingerprint. Our whole genetic sequence is like distinct to us. And that's true of everybody except for multiples like twins and triplets. And also deeply communal and shared in our families. And also even across whole populations, we can have the same genetic variants. And so there's something really challenging to our normal ways of operating um, when it comes to patient privacy, when we have sort of both of those things operating in that space when it comes to our genetics. And so one of the things that happens in a dilemma is you have really good reasons to do one thing, keep that information private, and to do the opposite. You have really good reasons to share that information because especially if your patient is able to get certain kinds of care for her breast cancer, there might actually be preventive options available to her family. And so that's partly why holding that information and confidence can feel untrue to a physician's obligation to do no harm, for example. And so I think one of the things to think about when you're facing these kinds of dilemmas is whether or not those good reasons for holding that private can outweigh the reasons that are in favor of the other. So that's often the the work of ethics is considering the balance. And this patient, you've just dropped brand new news about her cancer diagnosis on her while she's dealing with cancer treatment. And that's a big deal. And one thing to think about is because it's dominantly inherited, it might be a good idea to ask her about any kind of prior experiences in her childhood or adolescence because of the age of onset for these types of symptoms that are related to the disease. Did she lose a parent to cancer, especially her mother? And there's a lot of stigma still around cancer. And so there may be that this genetic result is somehow entwined in that. 
And so trying to figure out, is she experiencing stigma? Is she experiencing re-bereavement from the loss of a parent? Because now that whole experience is recast in terms of something that is also now her own experience in terms of being a cancer survivor or a current cancer patient. And so trying to figure out where she's coming from, where is that hesitancy about sharing that information with her family coming from? And if it's coming from feelings of powerlessness, just being with the patient and walking with her in that journey of grappling with the information over time. One of the things that we look for in ethics is a third way out of those dilemmas. And when we say either I can do A or I can do not A, we're constraining our options. And so sometimes what I do is I say, well, those might be your options right now, but what happens if this patient is back in your office in a month, in a year, in two years, because her cancer treatment's working? Maybe her attitude at that point has changed in part because she's had time to process that information. That's a great idea. And one of the things I know of, even uh, through a distant family member and some of my other patients, there can be a lot of cultural differences in understanding cancers and, and genetics. I don't know how often that cultural piece, you know, we talk about cross-cultural competence um, and a competence I don't like as a word because it's really just sort of being curious about different cultures to understand and ask questions. Is there an approach that you use or maybe it's the same approach with people from different cultures when you're dealing with ethical questions regarding cancer or testing with regard to genetics? Oh, so that's such an interesting question. So one of the things that I hear a lot from primary care physicians is that they're really nervous about having these conversations with their patients in part because there's such a knowledge gap on the expert side. This is sometimes very new information and maybe it came out after you've been through medical training. And so these are new to you as well. And so it's difficult to be communicating in that setting. But one of the things that I do as an ethicist is I sort of turn on my special ethics ears. <laughs> and I listen for the value statements that are sometimes made by patients. And one of the things that I've learned in the research that I've done on pharmacogenetics, which is more about communicating which drug is best for a patient. And we think about that as getting the right drug to the right person at the right dose at the right time. I have a paper you can put in your show notes. It's called, but what are the right words? And one of the things that we want to understand is that in that kind of context, it's really unreasonable for us to ever expect a patient to wander into the office and start talking about the word pharmacogenomics. That doesn't roll off my tongue, but it doesn't roll off yours. And what we found in the focus groups that we did is that it doesn't even roll off the tongue, like the notion of a drug gene interaction is also a mouthful, even though genes and drugs might be more intuitive. And so one of the things that we have to do is listen to our patients, hear how they're processing the information that they've been given so far. And often, I think one thing that can happen because we're so interested in knowledge is that we assume that what they need is more information. And we're worried that if they have a tough choice to face, that they need more information. Actually, what most patients were trying to do is navigate the healthcare system and all of its complexity. And so often their word choice was reflecting their desire that the physician in front of them was taking and receiving the information with the same degree of severity. And if they weren't, they wanted to know why. And if they were, if there's like a disconnect there, 
where like they're kind of blase about it and you think <laughs> the physician thinks that it's more important how do we resolve that disconnect and also just what's the next step do you need to refer to another clinician we want to make sure that part of the reason that we're helping our patients through the process of receiving test results is so that they can actually not be alone in grappling with the realities of what's on the other side of that result. And they may not necessarily be interested in all those intricacies of probability. They just want to know where the next appointment is coming. So listening to the word choice they make and assuming that it's not a deficit model of knowledge, that it's maybe more practically focused. Well, you bring up an interesting point because, uh, and so my interest really has been primarily pharmacogenomics. So that word rolls off my tongue easy, but I think what you really highlight is that a lot of clinicians really have a huge knowledge gap, whether it's pharmacogenomics, whether it's uh, the genomics of cancer, familial hypercholesterolemia, some of the other areas. And so we're often ill-prepared to discuss these results and, and maybe gloss over them and say, well, you, you've inherited the gene for familial hypercholesterolemia, so we need to treat you uh, without checking in with our patients to say, do you understand what that means? I mean, I can tell them that, gosh, by age 50, if you're a guy, you're at 50% risk of having a heart attack. That's a good scare tactic, but it really doesn't maybe communicate to the patient the need to go on a cholesterol-lowering drug which is why we do that. I guess it's really not an ethics thing, but it's it's really the, how do you manage that communication, acknowledging that the clinician often has a very large knowledge gap because these are new areas to us as well. So it brings me to the issue really of these patients who come in with their, hey doc, I got my genetic information and the ethics of what does this mean? I mean, do we take this at face value that, oh, you have this or you you don't have this? I mean, the ethics of do we do more testing? And maybe it's not an ethical question, but a lot of times I'm like, well, I'm just going to redo the test because it wasn't done at Mayo. Can we talk a little bit about that, these direct-to-consumer tests and, and what they mean? Because ethically, can I just trust them? Do I just copy them and put them in the medical record? I'm not sure what to do with that. Yeah, so I think it it really depends on sort of the reliability. The problem is there's such diversity in the kinds of tests that you're talking about that are being offered. And so, and also whether or not they're medically actionable, which can be the kind of result that it's called like variant interpretation, right? Is it pathogenic? But there's also the question of, as you point out, is it legitimate for a clinician to act on information coming from a third-party source and direct-to-consumer is something very new. There's not a whole lot of other tests that you can just go without actually having someone order it, right? And so one of the things to think about and to have a conversation with the patient about is just the possibilities that happen with all tests, which is false negatives and false positives. And the more complicating feature of genetics is that there's also the sort of scope of the test. So they may have looked for say some variants of cancer, but not all the variants that are pertinent to cancer. And so that's the other sort of piece that's missing in the ordering of the test is that it may not be attuned to that particular patient's family history. And so th these are ethical issues. They're ethical issues of sort of what we do when there's a kind of new element of market intervention that is sometimes understood as infotainment and sometimes just sort of seen as like consumer-led 
clinical knowledge or health information. And so how do we navigate this new space? And I think one of the ideas here is that we want to make sure that the test is analytically re reliable, like it's, it's actually telling us what we think it told us clinically reliable and we are able to make clinical decisions on it. And another conversation to have with patients is they may have assumed that this was easy information to get because of the relatively low cost for some patients based on the direct-to-consumer testing. But there are real questions for a lot of these tests about whether or not their health insurance will pay for that clinical confirmation, which is often needed. So yeah, again, think, that economic conversation is a good one to have. I think that commonly comes up is how much will, will this cost? Will my insurance cover it? And it does raise a question, which is probably ethical. Uh, maybe it's medical legal is if we get that information and it's in the chart, what does that mean for the patient with regard to insurance and things like that? I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not really ethics, but you can't withhold it, right? I mean, if we know it, it goes in the medical record. So then what? Yeah, great question. There's a lot of information out there about health insurance, not, not using a lot of genetic information for discrimination, but there's also possibilities of long-term care coverage and those types of things. So it is important, I think, to recognize the Genetic Information Non-Disclosure Act, which is protection against employers getting that information. That's specifically meant to help people feel that that information won't be used against them by their employers. But yeah, there's those bigger questions about other forms of insurance that are really tricky for patients to navigate because our insurance systems are also really complicated. And so they may not all be acting the same way regarding the same information. Last topic I want to touch on is that I know your interest in population health. And I know that if you look at the Center for Disease Control, they talk about three conditions really that we should be screening everybody for. They say we should screen everybody for the BRCA genes, even though it's a minority of patients who have it. We should screen everybody for the Lynch syndrome, which causes colon cancer. And we should screen everybody for familial hypercholesterolemia, which leads to early coronary artery disease and heart attacks. But we don't. So No, we don't. Ethically, what does that mean? I mean, our, 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 as a society... Ethically, we're falling short, right? I mean, what do we do? Yeah, so I think there's that case to be made, but I think it's also really an ethically complicated case. And, you know, the clinical and the ethics here run into each other in terms of the benefits and the costs. And so one way to think about this is that we need to make sure that our primary care systems, our healthcare systems are valuing prevention. And that's partly what you're talking about is this ability to get ahead of a disease and what a wonderful and beautiful thing to do to save someone that kind of pain and suffering. And we have these great examples of breast care mammography and prostate-specific antigen testing. But one of the things that happens specific to the United States is that we get really optimistic about the possibility of technologies to solve our problems. When we see in mammography, there are still many access challenges for some communities, especially communities of color, and there's still all kinds of barriers in the care system. And sometimes that optimism can lead us to adopt screening too early, and then we kind of have to like roll them back when we see what and the recommendations might be like, oh, wait until you see this other type of thing before you pursue additional screening, or you wait till a later age, right? The recommendations might change. And so part of what we're facing is in those three different conditions, right? Three different sets of genes, 
which are called the CDC tier one genes. There's a lot of evidence that we could do that kind of prevention, but we have to kind of, I think, think about it based on those prior experiences in primary care and make sure that and in ethics and in public health, we ask this question, how many people do you label at risk in order to save one life? And so when you are thinking about offering something, not necessarily to the individual, but at a population level like that, you do have to start thinking about what does it mean to send this many people for a test that won't help them individually, but it does save a life of a patient that's coming in your door tomorrow. And those are trade-offs that we have to think a lot about a lot, especially if it entails further screening or any kind of stigmatizing label for the communities that are being tested. Well, and I know we don't have time to really go into it, but you touched on the fact that even with all these technologies, they're not universally available. And all of the social determinants of health and the group that is at risk for healthcare disparities really aren't availed of many of these technologies. And therefore, they really are subject to an overwhelming burden of disease because they don't have these tools. And so there's a whole ethical issue about why is that? You know, what are we doing to sort of address the healthcare disparities in particular? Especially at that prevention level. And then if you think about it too, like what if you just are delivering that news that you're at high risk and there is this preventive treatment available, but it's not covered by insurance or you don't have insurance. I think those are also big questions that we make sure we don't only focus on the diagnostic test or the screening test, but that we focus on the fullness of what actually saves lives. Yeah, it's not just the test, it's it's the downstream effects that once you get this test, is it a true positive then what from a genetic standpoint, if it's a true negative or a false positive, where do we go from there? Yeah, and what are the treatment options that help us prevent that outcome and can you get to them? Karen, I want to thank you so much. I mean, I think you've highlighted that it's not simple. Genetic testing and genetic conditions really aren't a slam dunk. It's not an all or none. It is what you refer to as a probabilistic kind of condition. And so it raises all sorts of questions, which it's not a yes or no. And this week, I will have been in practice for 30 years. And and much of what we know today And much of what I see in my office wasn't known 30 years ago when I started. And so it's an ongoing challenge to figure out what do I do? What are the ethics of doing it? What does it mean for my patient? And how do I communicate the complexity of the situation to my patient? Yeah, thank you so much for having me here today. And I think that's really the key is also to remember that where something like this falls into someone's life, that's what determines the meaning for them is all of this bigger picture that primary care providers are often the only ones who get the chance to see it because they're in there with their patients through thick and thin. And so there is an opportunity there, I think, for distinctive service in terms of understanding how that meaning can be co-created as a team. Thank you. Today, we've been talking about ethics with Dr. Karen Mahar. Thank you so much for your time. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Please also check out our sister podcast, The Pursuit of Precision, the science advancing individualized medicine, which features in-depth conversations with researchers and physicians on discoveries in emerging science and precision medicine. Topics include population genomics, the episome, digital health, the exposome, and individualized vaccines for cancer. See, your genes really do matter.